Hey guys, I'm Esther, owner of Sarah Design. And I'm Jen, owner of Hello June Creative. Welcome to Better, the brand designer podcast. We're all about broadcasting conversations that support our design community and covering industry secrets and offering actionable advice. Just remember, the only designer you need to be better than is the one you were yesterday. Hey guys, welcome back to Better the Brand Designer podcast. I'm super excited to hang out with you guys one-on-one today. I'm really sad that Esther isn't feeling well today, but she's going to be back next week with us. So send her good vibes retroactively in the past. (laughs) So today I kind of really wanted to chat through what my magazine design background taught me about web design. And we're going to get into some really good just kind of actionable things that you guys can utilize in your own web design or even brand design or print design client projects. But I also kind of wanted to chit chat a little bit about what working in the magazine design industry, you know, five, six years ago was like. I'm going to kind of chat through my story and, you know, talk a little bit about what it was like working at Cosmo, working at Women's Health. It was such a crazy time. And I look back on that, you know, my early 20s living in New York City, like it was truly magical. And it's not something I talk about super often on Instagram just because it's kind of like a different industry, but there are a lot of connections. And I do truly believe that my time in the editorial design world had a really big impact on my web design skills and my brand design skills now. So usually we skip the intro question when it's a solo episode, but I went ahead and wrote one for myself today. And I'm not going to like ask myself the question because that would be kind of weird. But I wanted to tell you guys about a magazine that I would love to work for if I was still in the magazine world. You know, one thing about me is that I love magazines. I love print magazines. I just love holding them in my hand. I love buying them. I love picking up a copy of Cosmo or, you know, whatever magazine, taking a bath and putting, lighting a candle. And I just feel like it's kind of part of my self-care routine. And recently I've fallen off the magazine boat, but I received a copy of Real Simple Magazine in the mail because I used to be a subscriber. When I moved back to Florida, I guess my subscription kind of dropped off. They were like, we want you back. And I was like, take my money. I think it's like $11 for a year subscription, which is ridiculously cheap. So I'm going to find $11 in cash and put it in that little envelope they sent to me. They got me. They got me with that magazine. Like looking at it was just like looking at an old friend. It was just, it was wonderful. So that is the magazine that younger Jen dreamed about working for. And now I'm so glad that I'm doing what I'm doing. I know that I am in the right career path in the right design industry. But, you know, this is kind of like an alternate timeline for me or an alternate life where if I, you know, was still living in New York City, was still working in the editorial design world, I believe Real Simple is actually headquartered elsewhere. But there are so many really cool magazines that I would have absolutely loved to work for. And I feel like in the editorial design world in magazines, at least in New York City at the time I was there, you move around a lot. Like someone would stay maybe at a magazine for like a year or two and then go to another magazine, especially because the overall companies that own them, it makes it really easy to switch between titles. So I'm just over here reading my real simple, just, you know, daydreaming about a life that I don't necessarily want, but like, it's kind of fun to think about like, oh, what if I was working at real simple? I would be the design director, obviously. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe not yet at this point in my career. Maybe I would be 
a designer or working as an art director or something like that. You guys let me know if you've ever read Real Simple. For anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's just basically a magazine about like cleaning and organizing, but also like really aesthetic pieces that you can purchase for your home and interior decor. But they also have a lot of content around health and mental health and parenting and relationship advice. And I don't know, I just feel like it is just such a catch-all for people who just want to live intentionally and really value simplicity in their lives. And simplicity is a huge value of mine um, in my life and in my business. So it just really is pretty on brand for me. Also, their design is incredible. It's so clean. Um, If you ever want to learn about typography, open up a real simple. Their hierarchy is unparalleled. I love the way that they use um, type and fonts. And um, they've been through a couple rebrands and every single one just gets better and better. So that's my real simple obsession moment for you guys. I would love to know what magazines you guys love. If you love to read print magazines, you know, there's no embarrassing answer to this. Hey, I see you guys, you people readers. Um, that is totally fine. I like picking up a people every now and then from the grocery store. I know it is all fake. Um, I don't ever really believe anything, but it is kind of fun to read a little celebrity gossip every now and then. When I was transitioning from my full-time agency job to running my own studio, I knew that I really needed help. I wanted my business to succeed financially, but I wasn't sure how to even start. I didn't know how to price or structure my offerings, navigate sales calls, and I definitely did not know how profitability and peacefulness could coincide. I signed up for Design Biz Mastery, a group mastermind led by Morgan Rapp, at the very start of starting my business, and it set the tone for me from the start. I learned how to price by value and how to be confident on sales calls. Her coaching, which is backed by 10 years of experience running her own studio, made me feel that anything was possible and that I could structure my business the way that I really wanted to. Design Biz Mastery is built for designers ready to cut the noise and start to scale to six figures and beyond. The key? Powerfully productizing, pricing, and positioning their services using a blend of intensive style offers to create a consistent client pipeline boost revenue with profitable cash injecting offers and cultivating sustainable personal confidence and the peace that they crave. Building a wildly profitable and sustainable design business that supports your lifestyle doesn't have to be a pipe dream. Visit dbm.morganwrap.com backslash better. Wrap is spelled R-A-P-P to learn more about Design Biz Mastery and also receive access to a free private training about the three-part framework to peacefully scale your design business towards six figures on part-time hours. So I wanted to quickly go through my story about how I kind of landed in New York City doing magazine design and kind of what what that part of my life looked like. This was back in 2015. I was a junior in college and part of my journalism degree required a journalism residency or a JR where you would go and you would live in a different city than Chicago, or maybe you would do it in Chicago, but you would basically go and do a residency at a publication that you would apply to. Um, And so it was kind of like an internship program. It was not paid because it was part of the school's curriculum, which looking back, I 
I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with, but it was a really amazing experience. I do wish that it more was a situation where you did something over the summer and the publication had to pay you, but it was what it was at the time. Um, so a Northwestern was on the quarter system. So I went to Cosmo actually as their design intern in 2015 for a quarter, which was three months, I believe. And it was really an amazing experience. I went and I lived in New York City. I was able to stay with a family member at the time because it was very expensive to live there. She had an amazing apartment on the Upper West Side that I got to stay in for free, which was just so incredible. At this point in my life, I was, I want to say I was 20. So very fresh, right? Like at the end of my college experience and... It was like a movie getting dropped into like into New York City, you know, being that young. Like, I don't know if you guys have heard the song Welcome to New York by Taylor Swift, but like when I listened to that song, like I was that girl, like getting off of the subway by myself, moving into my apartment. Eventually, I moved into an apartment with two roommates on the more northern side of Manhattan just because it was a little cheaper. But the Cosmo team was amazing. It was. I don't know if you guys have seen um, The Bold Type, but The Bold Type is um, its a TV show uh, based off of what it is like to work at Cosmopolitan Magazine. They don't use the name, but that's what it's based off of. And it's pretty accurate, I have to say, like the layout of the office. Cosmo is a Hearst publication. And so I worked in the Hearst building right off of Columbus Circle. Um, and I it was like up on like the 20th floor or something crazy. And um Everyone wore their sneakers to work and then changed into their heels. Um, when they got to the building, you would always see all these women around, like switching into their like Louboutins and stuff because Hearst magazines, I think they had Harper's Bazaar. They had a couple of really high-end fashion magazines. Cosmo, of course, is a really big title for them. They also had, I believe they had HGTV. I could be wrong about that, but there were, were a lot of different brands. Oh, Oprah or O oh, by Oprah. That was a magazine that they had there. So tons and tons and tons of people in the editorial world working at that building. And it was just like, oh, it was so like overwhelming. I bought a little Kate Spade dress for my first day and I like walked in and I think my... One of the things that I was told in the very beginning was that if the editor-in-chief at the time, Joanna Coles, like walked by to like get out of the way <laughs> and to like let her pass. And I don't know if it necessarily was in like a negative way. Like I saw it more as a like, oh, like she's busy. She's got stuff to do, places to go. I got her lunch a couple times. So I did have to go do, you know, coffee runs and lunch runs and stuff like that. But for the majority of my time, I was actually working on the magazine, which was really fun. I sat back in the little production room um, and my boss was the magazine's designer. Her title was designer and she designed a lot of the interior pages of the book. I got to design a lot of back of book pages and front of book pages. That just means that it was kind of the more boring pages, like the table of contents or like the list of people who work at the magazine. Definitely the more like editorial features were done by people who are higher up. But one of the things that surprised me a lot was that it was an extremely small team. There was like maybe five people. There was a creative director. There was the designer that was my boss. There were two like 
managing designers or people who are a little bit higher up than my boss. And then me at the very bottom doing like a bunch of production work, I would cut people out of, um, you know, like in Photoshop for people to use on the layouts. Like I would just do a ton of production work. I would print out a lot of pages and hang them up on the wall for the editors to walk by and like look at and make comments. But yeah, I was kind of tucked away in that, in that, that room. And, you know, they, I guess, identified that I, they liked my design. And so they let me actually design a lot of the pages of the magazine, which was really, really, really cool. Also hand lettering at the time was a huge craze. And, um, so I don't know if you guys remember back, uh, five, six years ago, like everyone was doing hand lettering and it was all over Etsy and I definitely did it on Etsy. And so I was, I kind of volunteered like, Oh, I can do hand lettering. They're like, Oh, we need to find someone to do some like sketchy like hand lettering. I was like, Oh, I can do it. And they had me like write out the titles for some features. And I did like a feature on some makeup and I like, you know, I wrote out the word like bronze and then they like used it. They made it a vector and put it in the magazine, which was so insane to like see my handwriting in there. It was really just an amazing experience. Um, and I'm super, super, super grateful for it. After Cosmo, I actually went and interned at Women's Health Magazine and then eventually was hired as their junior designer at Women's Health. Again, very, very small team. It wasn't as like glitzy and like glamoury as Cosmo. Their office was a little bit more humble, but they still did have a fashion and beauty closet. And I will never, ever forget the last day that I worked at Women's Health. I was there for about a year total as an intern and as their junior designer. After that, I I had to quit. Well, I got to quit because I was getting married to my high school sweetheart and we were kind of embarking on our military journey. So I obviously couldn't stay in New York if I wanted to be with him, which greatest decision I ever made. There's only one husband in the whole world for me. And there were a lot of different jobs I could do. And I never thought I would be here today. So, but anyways, the last day I was at Women's Health, the beauty director let me go into the beauty closet, which is just, it's a big closet that has all of the samples and full-size products that the brands send to the magazine editors in hopes that they photograph and feature their products in the magazine. And she was like, oh, this beauty closet is so full. How about you just take whatever you want? And I was like, excuse me? Like, do you mean that? Like, can I take the perfumes? I mean, these perfumes are like $80, like on the shelf. Like, She's like, oh yeah, we have so many and they're going to send us so many more. Like, go ahead and just grab a bag and fill it up. So I was getting like Chanel makeup and Claude Poe makeup and uh, Dior and just like all of these are really high end like makeup and perfumes that I definitely could not afford at the time. It was honestly like a dream. Um, and I really love makeup and skincare. And it was, it was like someone telling you that you could go into Sephora and just take whatever you wanted off the shelf. It was it was insane. And of course I gave a lot away to my friends. I couldn't possibly use all of the makeup and skincare that they gave me that day, but the team was small and it was just really supportive. We had an amazing design director. Um, there were two design, So there's a design director, a creative director, two designers, and then me, the junior designer. And sometimes I had a summer intern, but at that point I was still like the lowest on the totem pole. So yes, I did go get coffee. I did go get lunches and stuff like that. But they also gave me a lot of responsibility with the magazine. And I did a couple pages for Cosmo, but I did a lot of pages for Women's Health. They let me kind of take over this little intro section where there were five different pages on five different topics. And just a lot of design work went into those. And 
Man, it was it was a lot. When I talk about the one concept method now, I love that so much because I had to design like 10 versions of every single page that they assigned me. Because they're like, oh, we just want to see like all the possible layouts. So I would literally sit down and design like 10, 15, 20 different versions of a page. And then the design director would give me feedback on some of them and narrow it down. Then I would make feedback and then they would eventually choose like the top choice. So that was definitely a little bit different than what my current job looks like where I do one concept. Um, But that was just, it was interesting because it really challenged me to second guess my first instinct, which sounds like a bad thing, but it actually made me a better designer because I challenged myself then to make the, the first one on the best try and then still like explore other options. But like whenever like the first option that I made was chosen, it just made me feel like, okay, I can trust my design instinct that I know what is going to be the best solution before I even try the other layouts, which was really cool. So yeah, I worked there for about a year. Like I said, then I, um, then I quit my job, moved to Southern Alabama for my husband's um, army training. And then that was that. So it really was a very small portion of my design journey, but I feel like I walked away with a lot of wisdom and just design basics from that experience. Because like you guys know, I did not go to college for design. I went to college for journalism. So I have a journalism degree. I did a little bit of design, but I was never formally trained in like color theory or like fonts or anything like that. And so I feel like I, lo- I picked up a lot of my knowledge that I utilize today in my web design projects from my time in the editorial design world. So now moving away from the story of kind of like my experience working um, in New York City, more towards the principles that I learned, the design principles I learned while working kind of in the magazine world and how I apply them to web design. I have a list here. I'm just going to go through them for you guys. Some of these will probably be like, yep, I already know that. But I think that it's important to like sometimes review the basics, you know? And if you are completely brand new to web design, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. Just because I say something here doesn't mean that that's the only way to do things. And in fact, the websites that are winning all the awards on, you can go on awards.com. It's A W W W. ARDS.com. That's where I go to look at, you know, web design inspiration and stuff like that. They break all of these rules. (laughs) So I don't know. I think it's important to know the rules so that you can break the rules. And obviously, magazine design is extremely different from web design, but I do think that the principles are generally very similar. So the first thing that I learned, which is not groundbreaking, is that less is more. And I learned this because my design director would stand up for the layouts that we had designed when the editors wanted to infuse the page with so much copy that the design would have to suffer. I remember getting copy, having it be too long, designing the layout with like, hey, we're going to have to cut like a hundred words or something. And then showing my design director, him agreeing, and then him showing the editor or the editor-in-chief. And they're like, no, like that copy is so important. Like you have to keep it on the page, just squeeze it in. And that was always like the worst case scenario because I don't know. I mean, I'm a designer. I feel like when you have good design, the content is more easily digestible and readable by the reader. Like no one wants to read walls and walls of text. And maybe that's 
why the print design um, magazine design world is not as popular now as like online and social media and web and stuff like that. But I just remember, especially the editors at Women's Health, always like fighting my design director to have more space for their copy. So my design style, and this is something I actually share with clients on discovery calls, very minimal copy, but like not bad copy. Like I think copy is just as important as the design, which might be a little bit of a hot take, but as long as the copy is efficient and hard hitting and really just impactful, I think a hundred percent less is more because the user is not going to sit there and read a ton of copy. Like sometimes all they read is like you're above the fold headline on your website, which is whatever the headline is when you load the screen without scrolling down at all. And I've had clients reference that specific piece of copy when they reach out to me. So I know that that is important. I just think taglines should be as short as possible. Headlines should be really short. Body paragraphs, I really try to stay to two to three-ish sentences. And then my calls to action or CTAs on website buttons are short and no longer than two words. And they're always very active. So if you guys go look at my website, hellojunecreative.co, you can see the minimal copy style kind of playing out. And more and more designers are going in this direction. One of the things that I say to my one-to-one mentorship students when I'm doing audits on their websites is to cut down on their copy, to shorten things. And I worked with a copywriter on my homepage copy. Um, I think it's actually harder to write short copy than it is to write long copy. And so we kind of whittled everything down until we got you know, to that place where there was very minimal copy. But like once you're done reading my homepage, I mean, it takes two seconds. You, I feel like have a good understanding of my positioning and who I serve and who I am and stuff like that. And my tagline is only four words, where color meets class. Like that is my positioning as a designer. And I am obsessed with that. Shout out to Rachel from Lair Studio, L-A-E-R Studio. Um, you can find her on Instagram. She came up with that tagline for me. And I just feel like it's so, it just resonates so well. It's everything about my design style. It's everything about who I serve. So yeah, keep your copy short. That's what I learned from the magazine world, even though the editors didn't always agree with that. The next thing that I learned while working at magazines in New York City is that margins and spacing are key. (laughs) If you imagine a typical magazine page, or if you just open up a magazine that's laying around, you'll notice that there is ample margin around the edges of the page. Obviously, that's so that the copy doesn't get cut off when it is cropped or bound. And actually, a fun fact is that the margin on the left or the right-hand side of a page, depending on what side it is in the magazine, is actually larger than the margins on the top, bottom, and the other side because it's obviously going to be bound. And so the copy actually has to be moved out from the interior crease of the magazine so that you can actually read it. So I try to use the similar principles in my website design where I have a lot of margin around the edges on the top, bottom, left, and right. And then the margins and spacing get smaller and smaller as you move towards the interior of the website. This helps you avoid trapped white space. I specifically remember my design director pointing at a layout that I had done and he showed me this big block of space that was like inside a bunch of other content. And he was like, that's trapped white space. We shouldn't do that. And I was like, oh, okay. Interesting. So, I mean, this is just definitely design basic. So, if anyone out there listening has been to design school, they're like, oh my God, Jen, 
that is pretty basic. But um, I just think that it's interesting that that applies definitely to web as well. Um, Because the spacing of the website has such a big impact on the hierarchy, which we'll talk about in a second, but also like the ability of someone reading to determine like what information is next to each other. You can group things with good margins and spacing or elements on a page can feel really like confusing or not grouped if the spacing is incorrect. So that's just kind of like a little a little thing that I followed since my time in the magazine world is more margin spacing around the outside of the page or the website or the website section or you know whatever you're designing. And then as you get closer to the middle, the margins get a little bit smaller. Another thing that I learned was to avoid widows and orphans in um, in the body copy or any type of like type situation like headlines or subheadlines or stuff like that. So widows are lines of text of a paragraph that fall at the beginning of a following page or column. So you don't necessarily want to have just one part of a paragraph spilling over from one page to the next because it just is kind of jarring and the spacing looks a little strange. Orphans can be a sentence that is on its own at the very bottom of a page. So if you have a new paragraph starting and there's just only one sentence, there's only room for one sentence, that could be an orphan. Or orphans can be words or phrases that kind of dangle at the end of a paragraph. Like if there's one word that goes at the bottom of a paragraph, that's um, considered an orphan. And I had lots of design directors and creative directors point those out to me many, many times. I never saw them until they mentioned them to me. And I do my best in web design to avoid them just for readability. And then also like the layout just looks cleaner if you don't have like little dangling words at the ends of your paragraphs. It is a little bit more difficult to do that when you're designing for responsive web web sizes um, because the paragraph size, the paragraph width is going to be different as you drag your screen back and forth. But if you're doing a fixed size or you're doing like a kind of a fixed headline, show it tends to be a little bit more fixed than responsive. I try to make sure that the that there are no orphans and no widows if I can avoid it and that the rag of the text. So if a paragraph is centered, then one the first line um, is not the same length as the next line. And so it goes back and forth between shorter, longer, shorter, longer, shorter, longer, if it is centered or if it's left aligned, you can do the same thing. And then I make sure that uh, the paragraph isn't so wide that it's like three lines of really wide copy and then like one teeny little line at the end, which is an orphan. Um, so just like some little typesetting things there that I've kind of carried over into my website design process. And I don't really see widows and orphans being talked about too, too often in the brand and web design world, probably because most websites are responsive and it is kind of difficult to control widows and orphans. I try to do this more so with headlines where I don't have one single word by itself on a next line, or if I'm doing social media graphics, or even just when I'm laying out my concept presentations, I try to make the typography really clean. I also learned about eye tracking and there are some really cool studies that you can go look up on YouTube where they put certain types of contacts on people's eyes and then they have them read certain things or read websites and they actually can track and see where their eyeballs are looking, which is kind of scary, but kind of cool. Actually, something I learned in school in in journalism school in a magazine class that 
readers obviously start at the upper left-hand corner of a page. They read, most users will read left to right. So they start at the upper left-hand corner of the page when they're just looking at a page for the first time. They're not necessarily reading it. They start at the upper left. They scroll all the way to the upper right. Then they move all the way down diagonally to the lower left. And then they move all the way to the lower right. So if you can imagine a Z shape on an eight, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, that is the standard way that someone's eyes will move across a page when they first look at it for, for the first time. So that I think is really interesting. It's something I try to use in my web design or even any print design that I'm doing where the most important information, like if I'm doing a drop cap or if I'm doing you know a logo or a headline or something, I try to do that closer to the upper left-hand corner of the page. I do fudge this a little bit because I love centering logos on websites. Technically, the correct user experience thing to do is to have the logo on the upper left-hand side, but hey, you have to know the rules to break them. So I just think that's really interesting that the least looked at or the last looked at part of a page is the lower right-hand corner. I do find that impacting the way that I will lay certain pages out, especially if there's a lot of information that I want the user to consume. And then font systems and hierarchy. Pretty basic, but the largest font size on the page should be the most important information all the way down to the legal copy at the bottom of your website. And so that's how the font systems for the magazines would work. That's how font systems for websites work. I mean, and Google cares about the hierarchy on your website. So this is like the most like basic form of SEO, but to optimize your client sites for SEO, always make sure that the most important headline is the largest font size. And then the least important thing is in the smallest font size. Yes, I break this rule, but you know, you kind of have to trade off some sort of like SEO and UX things when you are designing websites. We have a great episode about this from Kenzie Amick. Um, and she, uh, I believe that this was in season five where she talks about designing a website from start to finish. That's a great episode to go back and listen to because we do talk about general website rules, but then like breaking the rules and stuff like that. And there's a specific story that I remember from my time at Women's Health. I remember falling in love with this small all caps subheadline that I use constantly in my website design. I call it an eyebrow. Now, I love using eyebrow subheadlines. They are not technically subheadlines because they sit above the headline on the website. And I just told you guys that the thing at the top of the page should be the most important and the largest font. Eyebrow headlines are recommended against when you are optimizing a website for SEO, but sometimes they do a little bit of a trade-off. I love pairing a very large, probably serif font, very spacious, maybe thinner, with a very small, all caps, wide letter spacing, probably a wider font subheadline. Um, and two magazines that handle this really, really well are Real Simple and Bon Appetit. So if you guys are looking for website design inspiration, for typography systems specifically, I recommend both of those two magazines. You can just quickly look at them next time you're at the grocery store checking out or anywhere you can see magazines. Sometimes I like to go to Barnes and Noble and just kind of like walk around on the magazines and get some, I don't know, font hierarchy and, and typography system um, inspiration. So the next thing came about because oftentimes magazines would print darker than what we saw on our screens. So, I mean, readability is always important, but it was especially important when layering copy over images. And this is also extremely important for web design as well. 
not only because Google will ding you on SEO if your text doesn't have good contrast um, or readability, especially for visually impaired users, it's very difficult to read copy that's layered over a really busy background like an image. But this is something that we had to be particularly careful about when designing magazines because you never knew if the if it was going to print darker than what you saw on your screen. So you had to make double sure that the contrast was there, um, especially for smaller text. And, you know, just something that popped into my mind when thinking about readability. I just talked about doing all caps subheadlines. I learned a lot about how all caps font is a lot more difficult for the user to read quickly than um, typical title case or regular case font. And it's the same way with dark backgrounds with light text over them. Light text on a dark background is harder for the eye to read than dark text on a light background. And it's actually also much more difficult to print light text on a darker background just because of bleed and the ink and everything on the page. Now the technology is really good. Not like it was that long ago, but I think every single year magazines are able to, magazines in any type of print are able to print like more specifically with like less variation in the ink. But that was something that we were always really careful of is, you know, if you are going to layer text over an image, make sure that the image has a really clean background for the text to be very readable. And this is actually something I love doing on websites. I love layering text over images, but like an image that has sky or image that has like a blank wall with something at the bottom where the text can layer beautifully over it. And it's very readable. All of us have seen websites where someone has chosen to layer text over a really busy image and it just does not it doesn't look good because you can't read it and it's frustrating for the user and also Google hates it. So <laughs> there's that. And then the last thing that I wrote down here was that the editing process of the pages of the magazines really did inspire my web design process during QA or quality assurance week, which is a really important week in my web design process. So for the magazine, the pages would get printed out on these really, really huge pieces of paper. It was my responsibility to print them and update them and hang them up on the wall and everything. But once we got to ship week, which was the last week before we sent the magazine off to the printers and the production team packaged it up and everything like that, the pages would get passed around and physically signed off on by each member of the review team. So this would include the writer. This would include their like editor. So the writer of the article and then the editor of the section, like the food section or the beauty section or something like that. Then it would go to fact checking. It would go to copy editing. The design director would look at it, the creative director, the editor in chief, not necessarily in that order. I can't remember specifically like who got things at what time, whether or not the fact, I think fact checking was earlier on in the process and copy editing and stuff like that. Um, oh, for the, fo- the photo editor had to sign off on it, obviously to check the photo credits and make sure the photos looked good and the right photos in the right place and stuff like that. So everyone went around and physically signed off. So by the time that the piece of paper, the page got back to me, it had like 10 signatures on it. And then the last person who got it was the production person who communicated with the printer. And sometimes the printer would come back and have changes on it. So we would stay so late during ship week because we had to wait to make sure that, you know, one specific editor wasn't going to have any feedback or the printer was going to look at it in review and send it back to us and see if we had to make any change. And because we were the designers, 
we were the ones who had to go and make the change in the InDesign document. (laughs) So yeah, we always stayed really, really late during ship week, which looking back, I think it was kind of fun because we got dinner, we got to hang out as a team. But during the ship week, it was really exhausting because we would have to come in the next day at the same time. And it was a lot. But this kind of passing along of the types of review on that page really informs my web design process during what I called um, earlier my quality assurance week, QA week. So during the QA process, I um, work with my team through a checklist. And I know some people's QA processes are much more in-depth than mine, but I wanted to share my QA list with you guys just in case you wanted to write any of this stuff down. Um, or if there's a checkbox on here that's not on your QA list. Um, uh, Just so you guys know, Quality Assurance Week happens after the development has been, the whole site has been developed. The client has already given rolling feedback on all the pages as they're ready. We've done our final review call with the client, with the developer, and with me. We've collected one final round of development feedback from the client. And then we do Quality Assurance Week and then Launch Week after that. So this is after hopefully the client has already given all of their feedback to make sure that we're not having to go back and change things. This is more testing. So what I do in my quality assurance week, obviously I don't have like 10 different people working on this. So it does have to be a little bit more like holistic, I guess. But we do a full site copy edit, desktop and mobile. Everything that I say in this list is going to be tested on both desktop and mobile. And then it's also tested on lots of different types of screens. Whoever is around me, I'll grab their phone and test and make sure we'll do different browser tests. Um, Just really like looking at a lot of different use cases for web. So full site copy edit. We look at a ton of links. We look at button links, inline links. We look at all of the hover functionality. We look at menu functionality. We look at footer links. And then my developer, or if I have SEO, an SEO support person on the project, they'll do a basic SEO review of hierarchy and they'll install Google Analytics and they will take a look at all the image sizes and they'll make sure that all the images have like alt titles and kind of all of that basic stuff. I am not an SEO expert. So I always recommend um, Robin from 117 Marketing. She is a show it SEO specialist. And anytime a client has an SEO question, I refer them to her and I do not include SEO like packages at all in my web design packages, I will set up the website to be optimized for search engines, but I do not offer SEO services because it's just like way more complicated than what I want to get into. We test the client portal. So the Webflow editor, the show it editor, we make sure that the client has all of their documentation. They have their training videos. We walk through them on a live call that happens during launch week, actually live training call. So that part part happens after the QA week, but to make sure that they can log in and we actually have them work through a couple of like, hey, if you want to change your headline, show us how you would do it to make sure that they feel really empowered. They can ask us questions live and stuff like that. Um, We look for layout and spacing errors. Most of the time, those have been kind of cleaned up during the development review process. Um, We test all forms from all devices. And then we test third-party connections like email marketing and social connections, social feeds, pop-ups, anything like that. Or if there is any type of integrated third-party application, especially within Shopify, usually my developer will go through and do this part. So yeah, that's kind of like my QA list that I have for now. Maybe I should write that up and make that a freebie or something. It's very kind of high level. The sites that my studio works on are not 
like giant, like target level. I mean, I work with a lot of solopreneurs. I work with a lot of one woman creative studios. My priority is, of course, making sure that the website is amazing and there's like no errors or bugs or anything like that. But also that the client knows how to go in and update things on their own because I don't do like recurring website maintenance. I definitely want the clients to feel really good about being able to go in and edit things on their own. Clients who need that recurring maintenance typically are in like a higher price bracket. They need just more support. Typically, those are more like agency style clients rather than boutique clients. So yeah, that's kind of like my little QA process. And it's definitely inspired by kind of all of those different roles kind of going through and checking off and looking at each individual piece separately, um, coming together to make the magazine the best that it can be. Okay, so inbox question time. This question is from Desiree Carrillo. She wants to know how to position her brand with the design itself. And I picked this particular question because I'm not sure if you guys have heard me talk about it before. I talk about it a lot, but my studio does niche and position itself by design style. Not every designer or studio needs to have a specific design style. Giselle, in fact, did not have a specific design style. I mean, she had a favorite style to do, which was more rustic, more outdoorsy, but she worked with a lot more corporate clients where she would have to kind of shift and change her design style to fit their vision. The clients that come to me come to me for my specific design style, which has allowed me to really, really refine and all of my work tends to look like it came from my studio. That's not to say that it looks all the same because it definitely does not because we do strategy. We do definitely like, you know, brand strategy informed designs, but there is a part in my contract that is a style release that says to the client, Hey, you have a, you've spent a reasonably good amount of time going through my work. You understand reasonably about what you might expect to receive from me based off of my unique design style. And so, you know, that basically they, they can't come back and be like, oh, well, I don't like the style <laughs> because that is kind of the style and aesthetic that I work in. If you are considering positioning your brand with your design style, I suggest really thinking about what type of style you like to design in and then creating conceptual brands within that style. That way, the only work that you're putting out there is in the exact style that you want to be working in. And the clients that are going to come your way are going to see and resonate with that style or someone will come your way that will not like that style. And that's just as good. That is what positioning is. It means that we are not everything for everyone. We have chosen to niche into a specific industry or in a specific sector or serve people around a selection of values that are really important to you. So my recommendation is definitely if you're not sure what your design style is, do a bunch of different projects, maybe work on positioning over the course of, you know, six months to a year or a year and a half, two years. I am three and a half years, almost four years into my business now. And I feel just now (laughs) that I have really achieved the type of design style and aesthetic that I love. And so it's definitely a really long process. And there were a lot of projects that I did where I was like, nope, this is not the style that I want to be putting out to the world. And I just don't put those projects in my portfolio and I don't share them on my Instagram. So it's totally fine to say yes to projects that are not your specific design style. And I do that all the time, but 
because my positioning is my style. That's what I'm known for. That's what my clients ask for when they inquire with me. Um, I just choose to curate the type of work that I am showing people. So yes, use conceptual projects. If you have gotten to a place where you feel like you know what style you want to be working in, do a bunch of conceptual projects. So there's actually an episode about using conceptual brands to attract ideal clients from The Brief Collective back in season five. So definitely go back and listen to that one. But yeah, I think that it really is a longer process. And I definitely did not find my style for a really long time. And I'm sure that my style will morph and change through the years. And I want it to. I don't necessarily just want to stay in the same thing. I don't want to follow trends, but I also want to stay true to myself and my taste and what I like. And that is what clients come to me for. So that's kind of a, an overview of what I would do if you are trying to use your brand design style to position yourself. So Desiree, let me know if that was helpful. If you have any questions or anyone listening has any questions about using your unique design style to position your studio, feel free to tag me in a post in our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash better brand designer. I think that's everything. Thank you guys for sticking with me. I love doing the solo episodes. I do miss Esther dearly, but I'm excited to be recording with her next week. And if you guys have any questions at all, shoot me a DM on Instagram at Creative. I would love to chit chat with you guys. Yeah, I hope you have a good week and I will see you guys next Tuesday. Bye guys. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Subscribe wherever you're listening to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we'd be forever grateful if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts. We bet you've got designer friends who'd enjoy it too. So share it with them. If you'd like to submit an inbox question for us to answer on air, or you want to get in contact with us directly, email us at inbox at betterbranddesigner.com. Our Facebook community is one of the most positive, supportive, and fun groups we've ever been a part of. We'd love for you to join us. Search for Better the Brand Designer Podcast on Facebook. If you love these conversations between designer friends and would like to support us, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash betterpodcast. And visit us online at betterbranddesigner.com to learn more about our podcast and snag major discounts on our favorite resources. Special thanks to our producer, John, from Wayfair Recording Co. See you guys again next week.